Reformation Fellowship provides support and fellowship to all who would stand for the Reformation of Christ Church worldwide. We long to see the church revitalized by the gospel and seek to encourage all who share that vision. We gather together for gospel-hearted fellowship around gospel-minded theology. We are a ministry of union. Greetings, friends. My name is Justin Schell, and I want to welcome you back to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. We pray that our time together stirs your heart in worship to Christ and strengthens your hand in service to the church and the world. I want to make you aware of our website, reffellowship.org, R-E-F-fellowship.org. That's where you can find out more about what we are all about here at the Reformation Fellowship, and we can keep you updated on news about events, resources, the gatherings, etc. Today's guest, Dustin Benge, is back for a third and final conversation with us. Dustin serves as the provost for Union School of Theology in Bridgend, Wales. If you missed the first two conversations with Dustin, you'll want to go back and listen to those as we covered two wonderful topics, calling and training for ministry, as well as the Puritans last week. For today's episode, we will discuss biblical spirituality. Dustin, welcome back to the Reformation Fellowship. Thank you so much, Justin. It's it's so nice to join you yet again for another uh, robust conversation about a subject that's very dear and near to my heart. Mm, I'm I'm really excited about this topic because I think in in maybe I'll speak for myself, my little circle of the Western Reformed world. Um, we've kind of, I don't know, you could say given up on spirituality in a sense. Uh, maybe that's for others who are less inclined to theology. Sometimes we've, we've pitted spirituality and the experience of our faith against um, the content, the, the theology of our faith. And so I'm just really excited about diving in, uh, diving in here. Why don't, why don't we start this way? Um, spirituality is, as I said, being discussed everywhere, but people seem to mean different things by it. So what, what is biblical spirituality and how might that differ from the more popular ideas about spirituality pervading Western culture? Being spiritual, and I would put that word in quotes, and spirituality, and I would also put that word in quotes, are really in vogue right now. Mm. both in the East and the West, something like 80% of people in the United States consider themselves as being spiritual. You really only have to walk into a local coffee shop and see the community bulletin board to Mm. recognize people crying out for spirituality. Meditation classes, yoga advertisements, Tai Chi, New Age, self-help guru book advertisements, and all the rest of it. If, If you look up the word spirituality on Google, you'll have a myriad of websites appear and really probably none of them helpful to an evangelical believer. 
So in recent years, with an interest in spirituality, it's no surprise that many Christians have ceased using the word because it's really become to mean nothing. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just what pops into your mind when you say the word spirituality is someone walking a prayer labyrinth or someone with a crystal around their neck or someone using beads uh, that they go through reciting mantras or prayers. Mm. Therefore, I would advise us using the term biblical spirituality to best describe the type of spirituality that we would recommend and teach in our churches. Biblical spirituality has to do with every aspect of life, both personal and corporate, imparted to the believer by the Holy Spirit. That is, a life that is ultimately a personal relationship between the believer and the triune God founded on Christ's substitutionary death and glorious resurrection. That's the type of spirituality that we want, communion with the triune God of the cosmos in Christ. So in short, biblical spirituality is a work of the Spirit founded upon God's Word. That's why we use the word biblical. Mm. The Puritans called this piety, something of the inward relationship you have in sanctification with Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that relationship permeating every facet and relationship of our lives through the means that God has provided. So it's not just spirituality, but we want to clarify that and simply say that this spiritual life, this inward life of piety is a life founded upon God's word and God's revelation to us in Christ. When I've heard Christians talking about spirituality Often, I think there's been agreement that word, as you mentioned, and prayer are central to biblical spirituality, but how that fleshes itself out can be quite diverse in terms of practice. Can you help us understand the role of, of each of those in biblical spirituality? Maybe start, with, maybe start with prayer. What role does prayer play uh, for the Christian that's a very good practical question, and I would start out by saying Bible intake and prayer are inseparably linked. Mm. They are the bread and butter, the food and drink of the spiritual life. There's a beautiful relationship that exists between the Scripture and prayer, and when we think of prayer, we can't think of prayer as something of an impersonal requirement or a box that we need to check every day. Now, perhaps many of the listeners are well acquainted with what would be called the spiritual disciplines, which would include both Bible reading, Bible study, Bible meditation, prayer, and all the rest. And I love the study of the spiritual disciplines. As long as the disciplines do not become 
a box that we check off our spiritual to-do list. No, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a live, robust, vital relationship and link between us and God through Christ and his mediatorial work and the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. So prayer is not some impersonal requirement that we check off. There is an expectancy to prayer in that the Bible commands us to pray and expects all believers to pray. Prayer should be like breathing. We breathe every day to stay alive. How in this world can believers flourish in their spiritual relationship with Christ unless they learn to commune and have conversation with their heavenly Father? Throughout the Gospels, Jesus said it again and again things like, when you pray, this then is how you should pray. He even told his disciples, you should always pray. Then when we come to the epistles of Paul and others, we see the same injunction. For instance, in, for example, Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. So, so this is the first step to a proper prayer life, to recognize that the Bible commands us to pray, and that we are actually expected to pray. Now, just like growth in the ability to study God's Word, prayer is something that's learned. Sometimes we, we sit in service and we hear a pastoral prayer, and we think, oh my goodness, that that pastor is so seemingly in tune with the Heavenly Father. The conversation was with ease, and oh my goodness, I stumble over the words, and I don't really know how to pray, and I don't really know how to be that eloquent before God, but we just need to be very easy on ourselves in that regard. Prayer is learned. There's a sense that anyone can pray, but there's also a sense that if we are to grow to properly learn to commune with God, that prayer is learned. Donald Whitney, in his great book, Spiritual Disciplines, says that we learn to pray by meditating on Scripture. We learn to pray by praying with others. We learn to pray by reading about prayer. And I would also add, we learn to pray by actually praying. Most believers, Justin, pray less than two minutes per day. You will not recognize the importance of prayer and the necessity of prayer unless you actually pray. I dare say that most of us would not be married very long if we only spoke to our spouses two minutes a day. Hmm. You could not be a proper dad or a proper mom if you only spoke to your children two minutes a day. So how do we even imagine that we're going to have a robust, spiritual, holy life unless we commune with our Heavenly Father? We have to discipline ourselves to prayer. Prayer doesn't automatically come naturally. It's a learned discipline, and it's a vital link 
by which we grow in Christ and we mature spiritually. Well, let's let's link that up with the word now. You, you mentioned that prayer and the word go together. Help us understand then from what you've said about prayer, how does that take us to the word? We could say the Word or the Bible, God's Word, is our textbook, if you will, for biblical spirituality. After all, this is why we say our spirituality must be biblical. Mm -hmm. Our spirituality isn't Western spirituality, New Age spirituality, or even evangelical spirituality. It is biblical spirituality in that all of our spirituality flows out of instructions from Scripture. We pray because the Bible tells us to pray. We fast because the Bible tells us to fast, and so on. There there are many avenues through which we receive the Bible and use the Bible in our spiritual lives. We, for instance, intake the Word in hearing and by sitting under really good preaching in our local church. We intake the Word through daily reading and study. You should have a good Bible reading plan that takes you to the Bible every single day. We intake the Word through meditation. We intake the Word through Scripture memorization. And through these means, we then apply God's Word to our hearts, our lives, our actions, and our minds. Why? Why would we neglect the very instrument and the very means through which God has said he would sanctify us, which is his revelation to us in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. The Bible promises the blessing of God on those who apply the word of God to their lives. And so this is really simple. We cannot grow and mature in our faith void of the word of God. Let's stay there in the word for a moment. You mentioned another slippery word, meditation. <laughs> um, uh, we, we know people mean different things by that, but you've recently edited a, a little book by Thomas Watson on meditation. Hmm. What does Watson mean when he says meditation? And, and why do you think that's so important for Christians today? Meditation is one of the lost spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. If, if you go back less even than a hundred years ago, there were lots of material on biblical meditation. This was a practice that was normally um, involved in the lives of the Puritans, the Reformers, and other Christians in our rich heritage. But it seems a little off-putting when you say the word. It, it seems a little weird. And so Christians seem to avoid it. We think of someone sitting with their legs crossed, um, trying to empty their mind, trying to enter into a different state of consciousness. However, the rich Christian history from which we draw has much to say about this practice, and Thomas Watson is one of the preeminent men that says a lot about what biblical meditation is. The Apostle Paul implored the Colossians in Colossians 3 to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then, very curiously, he calls believers to do this. 
set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. One hindrance, Justin, to Christian sanctification today is our increasing inability to seek and to set our minds on things that are above. Mm. Our fast-paced world hinders that faculty at every juncture of life. Our phone is vibrating. Our email is dinging. Someone is walking into our office. Someone is wanting our attention. The news is bombarding us. And so we fail to seek and to set our minds on things that are above. Throughout the church's history, Christians ardently pursued biblical meditation as a frequent practice in their spiritual growth. The Puritan era reveals many works and sermons dedicated to this subject because they recognized meditation as a doorway through which they could lift their thoughts above the temporal trappings of this world and ascend to the mountain of God, not as they empty their minds, but as they contemplate the beauties of God, the excellencies of Christ, the glories of heaven, the reality of sin, and the need to self-examine every aspect of our lives. The word meditate If I could just add a concluding thought here, the word meditate simply means to muse, to think upon, Mm -hmm. or to reflect. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with emptying our mind. It has nothing to do with a higher consciousness. It has nothing to do going into some sort of heart space to, to reflect inwardly but it has everything to do with thinking upon and reflecting upon that which is otherworldly, all the things that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Thomas Watson defined meditation this way, and I love this definition. He said meditation is the soul's retiring of itself, that by a serious and solemn thinking upon God, The heart is raised up to heavenly affections. Mm. He said this too, and I love the way he puts this. Meditation is like the shining of the sun. It operates upon the affections. It warms the heart and makes it more holy. Meditation fetches life in the truth. Mm. Watson said, how in this world can we be sanctified if we are covered in the slime of this world? In other words, meditation is the means through which daily practiced, daily practiced, just as natural as the Bible reading, prayer, and even breathing, meditation is the means through which We contemplate and set our minds on things that are above where Christ is. Mm. 
Mm. Now, the Puritans, again, did not empty their minds. Watson, in his book on meditation, gives, and most of the book is on this, he gives subjects by which people meditated upon. They chose a doctrine of scripture. They chose an attribute of God, a characteristic of Christ or other biblical thought, and they forged it into their mind and heart to reveal its unadulterated truth. So very practically, before you leave the house of the morning, maybe you've read something in your Bible reading, pick one verse to meditate upon the rest of the day. Write it on a card, remind yourself, and try in your mind and heart to get out of that verse as much as you can get out of it. In other words, wring it dry of all of its truth. That's what meditation is. That's how Thomas Watson says it. And that's how I want to encourage others to do it. Yeah. And I, I can only imagine that uh, the first day someone attempts it may feel weird, odd, um, abnormal, like they're working a new muscle. Um, but with, with, con- with constant use, with, with, uh, with daily practice, that it would begin to more and more pay, pay benefits, that it, it would become more natural and more impactful in their lives. Well, my goodness, how much junk we have pouring into our lives mm-hmm. from our phones and social media and news and constant political commentary and all the rest of it, how much junk we have coming in. And meditation is a way of crowding out all of those things, saying, no, you have no place in my life before I set my mind on things that are above. When I think of biblical spirituality, Dustin, I also, I think of the the role it plays in the life of a minister, the, the impact of that minister's personal personal walk with the Lord on those that they lead, on the church that they shepherd. Um, you've edited a, a book also on David Brainerd, a uh, Christian missionary to the Delaware Indians of New Jersey. I think, uh, I think Brainerd's life, and, and I'm sure this is part of the reason why you wanted to make sure more people are exposed to it, but Brainerd's life is a beautiful um, testimony to the the fruitful ministry that flows out of a, of true biblical spirituality for the minister. Mm, Would you say that's, that's the case? Oh, absolutely. Brainerd is such a beautiful example of biblical spirituality in its truest sense. Now we know of Brainerd because he died in his thirties in the parsonage of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. And after his death, Edwards found volumes of journals that Brainerd had written during his missionary work among the Native Americans. And Edwards took those journals, he read them, and he basically thought to himself, here's something the world needs to hear. And so he assembled them and published a missionary biography of Brainerd that has been in publication ever since. It has influenced missionaries throughout the previous generations. 
And in the preface to this work, Edwards traces Brainerd's Christian piety or his biblical spirituality, if you will, along four lines of thought. And I'll just give those very briefly. The first evidence of biblical spirituality that Edwards recognized within Brainerd is what Edwards called evangelical humiliation. Edwards says this humiliation is an essential element in Mm self-denial. Truly converted Christians do not boast in their self-sufficiency or their ability to obtain grace, but they humble themselves as little children. That's the first step of growth, isn't it, in Christ? That's the first step of sanctification, our recognition that we have no self-sufficiency in and of ourselves, that just as our justification was all of grace, our sanctification, though we are called to be obedient and to pursue Christ with all of our might, is also given by grace. Evangelical humiliation. That's something that Edwards saw within the life of David Brainerd. Number two, a second characteristic was a change of nature. One key in understanding Brainerd's piety is the importance of God's alteration of our sinful human nature. In other words, we must truly recognize who we were without Christ and who we are now with Christ. So a robust theology of union with Christ, where he has brought us from and where we are now is essential in growing in sanctification. Thirdly, a sensitivity towards sin. And Brainerd's sensitivity toward his personal sin was an essential element of his piety. True piety is defined as having a sense of one's own sin. It's in the Beatitudes, isn't it? Being poor in spirit. That is, we mourn over our sinful condition. So, in effect, this produces, when we recognize the heinousness of our own sin, this produces a tenderness of spirit. And then fourthly, holiness of life. Mm. Edwards describes the Christian pilgrimage and what he saw in Brainerd's life as one of outworking in practice the life that has been given to us by God. I often say it in short, be what you are. Your inward life has been made holy in that you have been fully and completely justified. You have been made fully and completely righteous in the sight of God. You will not be any more righteous when you enter heaven than you currently are in Christ. Righteousness doesn't come in stages. Justification doesn't come in stages. We are once and immediately righteous before God. That's the same idea here. In other words, if God resides in the heart, and he does if you are a believer, and is vitally united to your heart, In genuine spiritual fruit, that spiritual fruit will flourish through holiness of life and practice. So be what you are. Mm. 
be who God has made you. And so those are just four of the aspects of spirituality that Edwards recognized within the life of David Brainerd. And I would encourage listeners, if you've not read that work, if you've not read that missionary biography, it's very easy to find, go and purchase it now because Mm. it is highly commendable. And you will see something of what I've been talking about here of what true biblical spirituality looks like. Mm. Yeah, that's wonderful. The story of Brainerd for me is so neat to see what we've been talking about here, the, the depth of his, of his spirituality um, married to a, a missionary zeal mm. to see the lost encounter the living God. And so I, I would just echo, yes, go get the book. <laughs> when we, well, when just we in his... About, if, if I could just if I could just say this, his his zeal flows out of his spiritual life. Mm-hmm. I don't think if he would have had a menial um, relationship with Christ, maybe reading the Bible, maybe once a week, praying three or four minutes a day, neglecting biblical meditation, mm-hmm. rarely attending a service of worship, was not engaged in personal worship. If he was not doing those things, there would have been much less zeal in his missionary efforts. So in other words, our biblical spirituality and the robustness of our spiritual life fuels all of our life and everything that we do. Yeah. Such a good reminder. Yeah. I can imagine someone listening saying that sounds really hard. <laughs> they may be listening to, to these, the talk of spiritual discipline, the talk of meditation, prayer, time in the word. And they, they hear that and they think that's a lot of work. So help us, maybe a good place to finish the conversation for today is just what role does joy play in biblical spirituality? Anyone that is perhaps thinking, you know, this is just seemingly impossible and perhaps they're discouraged about all of this. Um, The the issue here is the heart, isn't it? Um, you, You may seem to have external fruit and that God is blessing you, but if your heart is full of rot because of laziness and neglect, don't expect God to bless on the outside. It is so vital that we take responsibility for our spiritual lives. Yes, the Holy Spirit is implanted within us, but the Holy Spirit doesn't do it all, does he? Um, We are called again and again in Scripture to pursue these things with vehemence. Thomas Watson wrote a work called Taking Heaven by Storm. Jonathan or John Piper, John Piper talks a lot about this, about taking the kingdom of heaven with violence and violent men take it by force, that passage of our Lord. And it's so necessary to recognize that, yes, spiritual, the spiritual life is hard work, but it's also hard work to eat and to breathe and to live and to go about and do things in this world but how much more vital is it to pursue the things that are above and to pursue Christ 
And out of that will flow a joy. And the centrality of biblical spirituality is the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who therefore produces joy in our hearts. Mm. True biblical joy is a blessedness despite circumstances. Therefore, a deep biblical spirituality that is saturated in scripture, soaked in prayer, disciplined for the purpose of godliness, joy is an inevitable fruit of such a life of holiness. And this type of piety sings with joy despite the circumstances that may surround us. And that's what I want to do, Justin. That's what I would encourage all of our listeners to do is to seek such a depth of spirituality, biblical spirituality founded upon God's word that you can sing with joy regardless of what the world is saying, regardless of the circumstances that may surround you. Thank you for that, Dustin. And thank you for ministering to us for these last three episodes, brother. It's been such a rich blessing for me and I know for our listeners. Uh, Dustin, can I just say the Lord bless your leadership, your writing and teaching there at Union School of Theology and our prayers that the Lord would cause all that you do to bear fruit that lasts and glorifies his name. Well, thank you so much, brother. It's It's been a privilege to be with you and I look forward to uh, another episode of Reformation Fellowship podcast. And I love to have these conversations and encourage our listeners. I'm encouraged through these conversations and reminded of so many areas that I personally need to think through and pray about and um, seek and revise in my own life. So thank you for the conversations that we've enjoyed. Mm, Yeah. To our listeners, our time is up and we want to thank you for joining us and the Reformation Fellowship. We would love to stay in touch with you. The best way to do that would be to head over to reffellowship.org. That is R-E-F fellowship.org. Sign up for our newsletter. We'll be able to keep you updated on upcoming events, upcoming resources, upcoming gatherings, etc. Thank you again for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. God bless.